Welcome to Sundays with Montrose Bible Church. We're glad you tuned in as Pastor Matt leads us in a study of God's Word. This morning we continue our sermon series from the book of Matthew. As Jesus furthers his instruction about the ins and outs of God's kingdom. All along, the focus on that key doctrine has never wavered from the beginning of Christ's ministry until now. In fact, what was the very first thing that he is on record as preaching? He said to the people, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All this time, it's been about the kingdom and how one enters into it. And though that theme has not always been on the forefront of our minds, it would be very hard for us to miss this morning as Jesus continues to teach the 12 in Perea. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 19 and follow along as we read God's word together, beginning in verse 13. Matthew chapter 19, verse 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. And someone came to him and said, teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit 
eternal life. Many who are first will be last, and the last first. May God bless the reading of his word. After discussing his death and resurrection, warning about the dangers of sin, and answering the charge of the Pharisees in regard to divorce, Jesus has yet another opportunity to teach the disciples about the nature of God's kingdom employing children as the perfect object lesson that will drive his point home. Verse 13 tells us that while Christ was in Perea, parents and grandparents, family members and friends were bringing children to him so that he would lay hands on them and pray for them. And that might seem a bit off to us, but in their day it was common practice. According to Jewish custom, parents would bring their young children to the temple in order to be blessed by the attending rabbi sometime during their first year of life. You may recall Joseph and Mary presenting Jesus in that way. How they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. For the law of the Lord states that every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and shall be dedicated to him as such, this was the tradition of the Jewish people, and it was law for their firstborns. So we see parents bringing their children to Jesus, not necessarily because they knew his messianic secret, but because they acknowledged him as a faithful rabbi who could confer this blessing upon their kids. And yet, all of this isn't really about the kids. No, as Jesus uses this infant custom, he's showing the disciples what they must be like in order to enter the kingdom of God. And that's what this passage is really all about. It's not about the spiritual purity of infants. It's not about children being received into heaven universally. It's not about some age of accountability that is supposed to exist. I need to be clear on that because none of those concepts are taught anywhere on the pages of Scripture. And they are certainly not the emphasis of Christ's teaching here. Yet many a theologian have claimed it as such. And their persistence on the matter has influenced an entire generation of churchgoers. How many of you were brought up to believe that there was an age of accountability where children are saved by default until reaching a certain level of understanding? Well, here's the problem. The Bible doesn't make even the slightest hint of that doctrine. Now, we may wish it were so, particularly when a loved one loses a child at an early age. We may wish it were so, which causes us to find scriptures that will make it so, even when it isn't there. That's what many have done with the first few verses of this morning's text. Separating 
Jesus comments about young children in verses 13 to 15 from the rest of his teaching about the kingdom in verses 16 through 30. You need look no further than the copy that you are holding of your own English Bible, where you find uninspired subheadings that unfairly divide the text. Jesus blesses the little children here and then addresses the rich young ruler sometime later. Instead, there should be just one heading that says, here's what it takes to enter the kingdom of God. By holding up a lowly, weak, powerless infant on one hand and a man of great wealth on the other, Jesus is helping us see the great contrast between those who can enter his kingdom and those who cannot. All three synoptic writers place these teachings together because they are not two independent commentaries as we have typically viewed them, but two parts of the same one. And so the point is not, how much does Jesus love children? The point is, do I come to him with their level of humility, receiving the kingdom of God? Or do I come to him with the pride of the rich man, trying still to earn it? That's the question that each of us should be asking ourselves this morning because that's the question that Jesus addresses in this morning's text. First, he tells us that the kingdom of God belongs to those who receive it with the trust and humility of a child. Take a look back at verse 13. Then some children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, let the children alone and do not hinder them from coming to me. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. After laying his hands on them, he departed from there. As the crowds continued to listen in to Christ's teaching, many of the parents brought forth their children, eager to have this rabbi bless them and pray over them. But the disciples rebuked them. That is, they admonished them, corrected them, perhaps even physically restrained them so they would get no closer to Jesus. Now, I imagine the disciples were trying to protect Jesus' time here, knowing there are thousands and thousands of hurting adults more in need of a healing touch from the Lord than any of these tiny infants. He has too much to do, friends. He cannot be bothered with such frivolous and unprofitable things. I mean, certainly that was part of their thinking. But why would the disciples view these children as less important than others who were grown? Well, because in the eyes of their society... Children were less important. We talked about this a few weeks ago. when We saw Jesus take a child onto his lap back in Galilee. The kids in first century Rome were not the treasured bundles of joy that they are today. 
To some, they were seen as a blessing, sure, but to most, they were an unwanted waste of time. Now, think about it from their perspective. In a working class, agrarian society, kids were only as good as the amount of work that they could perform. So you mean I have to feed, clothe, bathe, and continually watch this six-month-old? And there's a 50-50 shot that they will die before ever contributing in a meaningful way to our family work? No, until he can carry his own weight around here, he is worth absolutely nothing to me. That was the prevailing sentiment toward little ones. In fact, they were so incredibly underappreciated that during this time, it was common practice for Romans to discard their unwanted children on the trash heaps outside their homes to be rid of their burden. Society at large saw them as nothing but a liability. And a similar viewpoint was held amongst many of the Jews who considered children the lowest and most undesirable of all the classes. In fact, Jewish rabbis considered it a waste of time to teach the Torah to any child under the age of 12. Because until that point, quote, they weren't worthy of its message, unquote. So the disciples rebuked the parents for bringing their children and attempted to send them away. But when Jesus saw what was happening here, he was none too pleased. According to Mark's parallel account, Christ became indignant at this point in the encounter. Not because he was dying to bless some babies, but because the disciples should be getting this by now. And it continues to elude them. See, they're still viewing people through the lens of culture. The culture which says the rich, the powerful, and the proud are welcome. Anytime they come, while the poor, the outcast, the overly needy, they are excluded. Now, ironically, this discrimination is coming from a group of fishermen and a tax collector who, by all standards of society, were unworthy to shine Jesus' shoes themselves. But it is to those lowly disciples, Jesus says, why would you hinder the broken? And the downtrodden, the abandoned or the oppressed. No, let them come. All of them. Because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now again, because this text has been used so inappropriately by others, I must point out what is the obvious statement being made here. He's not saying all children are in the kingdom. Nor is Jesus saying that only children can enter in. No, he's saying in the economy of heaven, there are certain childlike attributes that are absolutely essential. As one theologian put it, children have a certain quality about them 
that is essential for kingdom admission. It's not their innocence, for they are every bit the sinner as the rest of us. Nor is it their purity, their cleanliness, or their righteousness before God. No, children are examples to us in none of these things, but rather in openness, helplessness, dependency, and trust. And what a contrast to the character brought forth by the rich man in just a few verses that follow. He was not helpless. He thought he could help himself. He was not dependent because he had everything that he could ever need. And the only trust that he exhibited was trust in his own abilities. Believing he had fulfilled the law. He had obeyed the prophets. He had earned the right to be blessed by God. Yeah, that sounds just like the typical adult. Yeah? All this time, we've been telling our children to grow up and become more like adults. Jesus tells the adults to grow up already and become more like the little kids. That we would no longer flaunt our self-sufficiency as though we have arrived somewhere. But realize how fully dependent on the Lord we are. These are the qualities he is insisting to see in us. Just as he used their humility as an example back in Matthew 18. When the disciples came to him and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called the child to himself and set him before them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's what it takes, friends. Openness. Receptivity. Humility, dependence, trust, weakness, and vulnerability. You come to Christ like that, with empty hands and a contrite heart, or you don't come to Christ at all. Do you see? Jesus needs us to know that the kingdom of God belongs to those who receive it, with the trust and humility of a child. He also tells us the kingdom of God belongs to those who are willing to admit that they fall short. Take a look now at verse 16. Someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? 
Jesus said, you shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now, if you have spent any time in or around the church, you've likely heard about Christ's encounter with the rich young ruler. There's no doubt that most of you have heard this so-called story before. And yet our familiarity extends only to one or two verses of its content leaving much for us still to learn. Beginning with the opening question. Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? Now, certainly we can appreciate this man's zeal, his excitement, his desire for the kingdom of God. He comes to Christ in search of answers in a way that certainly seems authentic, genuine, and devout. Oh, he appears right on the verge of salvation. But what comes out of his mouth reveals a huge misunderstanding about the kingdom that he seeks. For while Jesus talks about the need to receive the kingdom like a child, the rich man comes asking what he can do to earn it. The word he uses there comes from the Greek poieo. It means to make, to create, to produce or accomplish. What must I achieve in order to gain the reward of eternal life for myself. The question he poses shows just how badly he has misconstrued this entire gospel thing. And Jesus' reply is intended to set him straight. What must you do? Man, you should have been here when I was blessing the little children. You would have learned it's not about the good that you do. It's about the good that God has already done. The rich man missed that along the way. So Jesus takes the opportunity to clarify. He says, I don't even know why you're asking about good things. There's only one who is good and it is. Ain't you. It's important that you remember that, friends. Because it will serve as the foundational truth upon which everything we talk about is going to rely. No one is good but God. Do you get it? So yeah, that's simple enough. I, I think I get it. Okay, Jesus says, let's practice. Are you good? That is, have you obeyed the commandments completely? Not to murder, not to commit adultery, not to steal? Yeah, 
Yeah, I'm good. For I fulfilled the law perfectly since the days of my youth. Okay, maybe he doesn't get it. Only God is good. So, are you good? Having abstained at all times from false witness, from fraud, from bringing dishonor to mom and dad? Yeah, I'm good. Every day of my life, I've been good. Something wrong here, right? The man's saying, yeah, I know. No one is good except God, but come on. I'm pretty good. And that's the problem. That the overwhelming majority of people in this world continue to stumble over today. That even when confronted by the Holy One of Heaven Himself, people maintain this crazy notion that they are good enough to obtain eternal life all on their very own. Every one of us who is unwilling to admit that we fall short of God's perfect standard, every one of us in that situation, is going to find eternal life more elusive than we would ever have dared to imagine. God gave us the law, not so man could boast of having achieved it, friends, but to show man that he never could. And yet here we are like the rich man and countless others throughout history before us, justifying ourselves, telling Jesus He doesn't have to die for our sins because you know what? We don't have that many. Well, like our wealthy friend here in Matthew 19, you might measure up favorably when compared to other people around you. You might. But I assure you with a certainty beyond words, that you fail miserably against the standard of Almighty God. So while the rich man refuses to acknowledge his shortcomings toward commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, Jesus forces him to recognize his guilt in Numbers 1, 2, and 3, saying, since you are apparently perfect, I guess there's only thing, one thing left for you to do. Go and sell your possessions. Give them away to somebody else. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then you can come and follow me. But at these words, the man was immediately saddened. And he went away grieving. Not just because he owned much property, as we're told in verse 22, but because... For what is likely the very first time in his entire life, he became aware of the idolatry that ruled in his heart. I mean, that's it, isn't it? Even if he hadn't murdered, he hadn't committed adultery, hadn't given false testimony, hadn't defrauded or dishonored his own, 
He was guilty just the same. For he had been worshiping his wealth and bowing low to something other than the one true and living God. These commandments are of even greater significance to the Lord. Who said in Exodus chapter 20, you shall have no other gods before me. Not money, not possessions, not people, not popularity, not efforts, not activities, not a special cause. You shall have no other gods before me. Nor shall you make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not share affections with your other and lesser things. We all need to have our eyes open on this one, friends. Because even if it were possible for you and I to meet nine out of the ten commandments with perfection, James assures us that whoever stumbles in just one point has become guilty of all the law. That's us. And we need to acknowledge it. Surely the Bible is right when it tells us that no one is good except God alone. Surely the Bible is right when it says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Surely the Bible is right when it says there is none righteous, not even one. That there is none who understand, none who seek for God. That all have turned aside and have become useless. That there is none who does good, there is not even one. Until we get that, friends, we're going to go away sad and grieving too. Because the kingdom of heaven has no place for our self-righteousness, our misplaced affections, or our comparative self-worth. Yeah? The kingdom of God belongs to those who receive it with the trust and humility of a child. To those who are willing to admit that they fall short. And to those who acknowledge that salvation is the work of God. Take a look at verse 23. After the man walked away in sadness, Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished. They said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And not only does Jesus talk about the difficulty for wealthy individuals here, he speaks about the struggles for any one of us. Because it is totally and completely contrary to our human nature to lay down our accomplishments, our achievements, our accolades, 
and say, none of these things entitle me to a single thing in heaven. That's hard. Especially for those of us who are used to buying whatever we want. But to find out now that the thing that I need most can't be bought, it can't be negotiated, can't be haggled over or earned, that's hard. But that's what this great contrast has revealed to us. Jesus says, those who receive the kingdom like a child, with openness, honesty, dependency, and trust, they'll have no problem. But those who come impressed by their own actions will find it most impossible indeed because they're filled with pride, self-sufficiency, and a swell of independence that speaks great falsehoods to our heart, trying to convince us that I've done everything else on my own. I can do this salvation thing too. As that is a huge problem in our churches. It's not isolated to one building, or one denomination, or one theological bent. This is so widespread, it tears at the fabric of all our congregations. Now, perhaps you are familiar with the gospel sharing initiative that began back in the 1960s called Evangelism Explosion. This method of witnessing asked individuals two basic questions, one of which was this. If you were to die tonight and stand before God, and who were to ask, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Interested in the replies, R.C. Sproul tracked the answers given by those who were already affiliated with the church. And what he found was quite alarming. According to his studies, 80% of those in the church answered that question with works righteousness responses. Things like, I've tried to live a good life. I'm not a criminal. I haven't murdered anyone. I go to church almost every Sunday. I attend Sunday school. I'm a deacon. I'm an elder. I play on the worship team. I'm not as bad as some other people at my work. It appears that 80% of us are still relying on our performance for entrance into the kingdom of God. Just like the rich young man. Except we have less of an excuse. Because we have heard the good news of the gospel. That though we are sinners, Christ died in our place on that cross. Having reconciled us to the Father through his atoning sacrifice, apart from which we would have remained enemies of God forever at a distance and spent our eternity in the depths of a fiery hell. We've heard the good news of the gospel. So why are we still trusting ourselves when everything points to our 
inability to stand on our own in the presence of God. Perhaps instead of just nodding our heads in approval when we hear the gospel being proclaimed, we ought to respond to the truths that it's teaching. Huh? Man, if we would open our minds and hearts to do that, we would find great hope for salvation. Just as the disciples did after asking Jesus, who then can be saved? It's a fair question. After all, if this rich man couldn't do it, what chance do we have? Well, with people it is impossible, Jesus says. With people, you can forget it. With people, no one gets in. (laughs) But this thing doesn't depend on people. He says, all things are possible with God. Now, of course, this is another one of those texts that is used frequently out of context in great abuse. We use it to motivate the team during halftime when they're down by a significant margin. We use it to rally up the graduates at our commencement address We even print it on various things that we have around the home to encourage us. In context, which is how we're supposed to read and interpret these things, Jesus is talking about salvation. Are all things possible with God? Yes, but we ought not apply that when thinking about jumping over Niagara Falls. This is about entering the kingdom of God. To which he says... It's not even in the cards for people to do on their own. Salvation can't be bought by men. It can't be earned by men. It can't be achieved by man's good works. But it can and is to the elect granted by the one true and living God. And so, as Kenneth Barker puts it, salvation is totally and completely his work. Every attempt to enter the kingdom on the basis of human achievement or merit is futile. For apart from the grace of God, salvation itself is an impossibility. And not a single person among us can be saved. Are you there? The kingdom of God belongs to those who receive it with the trust and humility of a child. The kingdom of God belongs to those who are willing to admit that they fall short. The kingdom of God belongs to those who acknowledge that salvation is the work of God. Not man. And the kingdom of God belongs to those who abandon the treasures of this life. Reflecting on this whole situation, Peter said to him in verse 27, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, 
You also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Now, the rich young ruler was unwilling to put his love for God above his love for other. In his case, it was wealth that caused a stumble. It might be something different for you or I. But regardless, Jesus says you must be willing to abandon everything else that you hold dear if you are to follow Christ. Not just as some token gesture, but because you know how immensely the value of eternal life exceeds the value of all else. Whether that's money, relationships, land holdings, or the like. If we only understood the surpassing riches of God's kingdom, and we would quickly, readily, and easily throw things aside for the sake of Christ. The child in us would do that. For something better, the child in us would have absolutely no hesitation at all. In fact, many years ago, I got to witness just such a thing. When my nephew and niece were much younger, I took them to a local fair. And we had just gotten them ice cream bars from one of the stands. Well, as we were walking around eating, all of a sudden, the four-year-old girl catches a glimpse of a pony just a short distance away. She drops the half-eaten ice cream right there on the ground and takes off running as fast as she could to get a ride. Now, you can imagine how upset I was as an adult watching money melt away on the ground. And I would have gone about it a different way. No doubt, I would have tried to remain in possession of the one thing while still trying to get the other. But not her. She had absolutely no problem throwing away what in her opinion was second best in order to get that thing which was better. And so too should we. Jesus says, if you are willing to give up the good in this life, you'll get the great for all eternity. For everyone who has left houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, children, or farms, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But you've got to pry your hands off of the here and now in order to do so. As Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again, and from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. 
Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had to buy it. Now, we see that type of devotion, we call it crazy, over the top. Now, I'm here to tell you it's the only right, reasonable, and rational response that we could possibly muster. To give up everything to get all the more. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to receive the kingdom with the trust and humility of a child? Are you willing to lay down your pride and admit that you fall short? Are you willing to cease your striving and acknowledge that salvation is the work of God? Are you willing to abandon the treasures of this life for the sake of riches far greater? Oh, how I hope that you would. Because your place in the kingdom of God hangs right there in the balance. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you and so often, so often we come in pride, in arrogance. We come boasting of our abilities and our strengths. Lord, I pray for a humbling. I pray, Lord, that as we listen to your word, as we sit under it and we take it in, Lord, that we would understand the humility of a child far exceeds the wealth of the adult in your economy. Lord, that you much prefer humility over boasting, that you much prefer weakness over strength. Lord, thank you for these lessons. I pray we continue to impress them upon me, upon everyone in this room, that we would come to you the right way, and that in so doing, you, by your grace, would allow us entrance into your presence with all the splendor, glory, and riches uh, beyond compare for all eternity's sake. Lord, help us to give up what we see as good now to get what is clearly and obviously far better. Life spent with you. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you for this teaching. May we continue to hear it and heed it for your glory's sake. Amen and amen. We trust you were challenged by the word of the Lord and invite you to join us again if you'd like to learn more about our ministry in Montrose or want to connect with Pastor Matt. Come worship with us at 930 every Sunday along Lake Avenue 